You know, there's a couple uh, medical dramas that my wife Vanessa and I enjoy watching once in a while. And uh, one of the things that always amazed me about these uh, medical dramas is the actors, how they're able to remember these incredibly long and sometimes complicated medical terms. And especially if they're working in the OR or whatever, they're just rhyming off these names or sicknesses or procedures, and you just kind of, how in the world do I even pronounce it? But you know, if you've ever suffered from any of those conditions, then you're probably familiar with them as well. Or if you've ever had to use some of the medications, again, have these long names, you can probably list off maybe a, a half dozen different ones because if that is your medical condition, then you recognize your need. And so those things have become important to you. You know, in the Bible, there are many, many wonderful words, and uh, some of them maybe we've heard and haven't thought much about, and even as Christians, maybe some we've heard about in times past, but we haven't appropriated to our lives in a long time. But these particular words I want to share with you this morning, these three words have to do with our spiritual health and vitality. And uh, if you know Jesus Christ, then you know how important these words are to you. And if you don't, I hope that you'll understand uh, by the end of this message what they mean and how they can be applied to your life and become a reality this morning. Our scripture this morning is Romans chapter 3, verses 23 to 25. The Apostle Paul uh, wrote this letter, and I'm going to ask you to read the scripture with me this morning. Romans three twenty-three to 25. Let's read aloud and together. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. How many had to pause before you said propitiation? Let's be honest, okay? It's not a word we hear a whole lot, but it's a beautiful word that's just full of meaning. Justified, redemption, propitiation. Three words, again, that we maybe don't hear a whole lot, but if you're wondering how important those words are to you, let me just run a little diagnostic here and ask you three simple questions. Do you ever feel or have you ever felt guilty because you've done wrong and you don't know how to start over? then you need, justific- you need justification. Do you ever feel trapped by your past because of things you've done wrong that maybe come back to your mind from time to time? If so, then you need redemption. Do you ever feel that maybe God is still angry at you or you're not quite sure where you stand with God? If so, then you need propitiation. Now, these three words are not just theological terms. They are actual transactions that God the Father has performed on behalf of you and me in order to bring us into relationship with us and to meet our deepest need. And all of these words have to do with blood. Might sound kind of gory, but you'll see in a moment that it's not. They have to do with blood. More specifically, they have to do with the blood of Jesus Christ. We sang just a few moments ago that there is power in the blood. What kind of power is there in the blood? Well, there's power to pay the price to God that we owe for our sin. There's power to make us pure and make us innocent as if we've never sinned. And there's power to satisfy the law and the wrath of God against our sin and to make us children who actually know his love and who walk in that love. The Apostle Paul said, we are justified by His grace. Let's begin with this word justification. I'm going to spend a bit more time on this one to lay a foundation, and the next two words we'll go through rather quickly. 
Justification simply is a legal term that means that a judge rules in your favor and declares you innocent. Isn't it wonderful if and when that ever happens? I mean, you've broken the law, you've done something, whether intentional or not, you stand before the judge and you realize you're in trouble, you're going to pay for this, and by some means or another, the judge is able to let you go. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the fact that the uh, speed limit changed out here on Mountain Road down from the church. Well, I discovered that the hard way. And I don't feel so bad because a couple of the staff, other pastoral staff, discovered it the hard way. Went from a 70 to a 50, and that kind of brings your ticket from like 172, I think it is, to 300 and something dollars. So there's been a few of us, and you turn right, you zip down the hill and go, oh no, I forgot the speed limit changed. And so we were caught. But you know, what's even worse than having a citation, having the, the police officer write up a ticket for you, is the fact that you can't hide it from your spouse. Because <laughs> they kind of do the bookkeeping. You know, that's one of the downsides of a joint account. Paul, what's this about? <laughs> So as I told folks at the first service, I was kind of praying that she'd drive down there fast too before she found out about my ticket. And then maybe she can come home and say, honey, I'm so sorry. And I can say, that's okay, honey, I understand. <laughs> but it, uh, it didn't happen. And the ticket didn't disappear. Um, but in any case, the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 18 that God is judge over all the earth. Now, we tend to think of a judge kind of in harsh terms, or even the legal system sometimes or the law in harsh terms, but it's not. The law is actually there for our protection. It's to protect us from those who would break the law and somehow perhaps hurt us or wound us, and, and even to protect us from ourselves if sometimes we're tempted to do something wrong. And so when the Bible says that God is judge over the earth, what he is saying is that he rules the earth with perfect fairness and he responds to every violation of his laws with the punishments that they deserve. Now, some of us are probably familiar with the term justice denied. That's when a crime is committed and it appears that the criminal, the one who transgressed the law, didn't get what they deserved. I read a story not too long ago of a man who was sentenced to two years in prison and he had sexually assaulted a five-year-old girl. Now, understandably, people were incensed and people were demanding that this judge resign and actually be replaced with a real judge. Now, why would people feel that way? Because there's an inherent sense that a judge is supposed to be just and the lawbreaker will receive punishment, but punishment according to what they deserve, not more, not less, simply what they deserve. Now, the same is true of God. The Bible says that every sin must receive the punishment that it deserves. Now, that's not a concept that bothers a lot of us, because if we're honest, we just kind of go about living our lives, and a lot of times we're not that concerned that we have broken God's laws. And one of the reasons is because we tend to convince ourselves, well, yeah, I know I'm not perfect. That's the great, right, reset button. Yeah, I I know I'm not perfect, uh, but at least I haven't done that or the other thing right? Or I know that I shouldn't have done what I did. You know, it's not nice to do that, but I'm not as bad as some people I know, right? The Bible calls that self-justification. We always seek to justify ourselves, even though we've done something wrong. But can you imagine standing before a judge and thinking that the judge will be impressed or even swayed if you said, your honor, listen, I understand I broke that law, but listen, there's a whole bunch of other laws that I've never broken, or, or I know that I broke that law, but you know what? I know some people that have done a whole lot worse than that. Well, do we think the judge is going to be impressed? No, he's not going to be swayed. Why? Because I have broken that particular law 
and I need to pay for whatever the, the result of that may be. And God, of course, is the same way. God is not impressed by us living a life that says, you know, I don't really know where I stand with God. You know, or you'll hear a lot of people say, well, you know, me and the man upstairs, we have an understanding. Yeah, it's not the man upstairs you think it is. Yeah, no, no, you don't have an understanding. You don't understand how this works. You see, the reality is the Bible says that God is just. And if, if we expect our human judges to be just, then how much more does God need to be just if there's going to be order in the universe, if there's going to be order in this realm and in the spirit realm to come? And the reason why there's so much disorder and chaos in our world today is because what we are seeing is not because of loving of God, it's just allowing all this to happen. What we see today, the wickedness, the brokenness, the wars, the murders, every kind of sin and brokenness that you can mention, the reason that we see it is because all of it is a manifestation of the evil of the human heart, the selfishness of the human heart. Now, we might say, why doesn't God stop it? Why doesn't he just put an end to all of this? Because if he did, the only way he could do that would be to destroy every one of you. You ever think of that? Because, you see, we tend to think, oh, if God was really a loving God, he would, you know, he, he would take care of this. Yes, he would, and you'd be number one on the list probably. Because, you see, you are sinful too. But because of his love, his love creates this patience that he puts up with a lot that is going on because he knows the way to change the world, the way to change the world around you is one heart at a time. One person after another, as you surrender to him, as you confess your sin, as you, the power of sin over you is broken, then he's able to begin to affect change in your heart, in your home, in your workplace, in your neighborhood. He knows that's how it works. Other than that, he's got to blow the whistle and say, okay, everybody, out of the pool. It's over. But he doesn't do that because of his love. He's willing to be long-suffering and work in the midst of all of our sin and brokenness to save those who call upon him and recognize their need to be saved. Now, we all commit different sins, or we all have committed different sins, different things we've done. I've done some things you've never done. You've done some things I've never done. And so we're all different in that way. And if the Bible says that there are many, many sins that are committed, I'll just read you a couple, but there's many listed in the Scriptures. Uh, things like anger, of course, uh, lust. Um, I lost my list here, but I should know it by memory. There's so many things that we, that we all do together. But uh, anger, jealousy, lust, all those different things. Uh, those are things that we maybe all dabble in a little bit. But the one thing that we absolutely share together that we have in common is found in Isaiah 53. The prophet wrote, All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have all left God's paths to follow our own. In other words, the one crime, the one violation that every single one of us have committed is that we have all turned our back on God. We have all rebelled. We have all been proud and said, thank you very much, God, but I'm going to do this my way. How many times, in fact, have you have heard that little voice in your mind saying, ah, don't do this, right? And you ignore that voice. You ignore the conscience. You ignore the voice of the Holy Spirit who's trying to protect you and keep you safe. Now, now, in this situation, this is what I want to do. And so we go ahead and do it. So we have all experienced rebellion. In fact, the Bible says that Adam and Eve, their forefathers, that they actually did the same thing. They turned their back on God. They rebelled. They didn't have children uh, uh, before when they were perfect. But it was after they had rebelled and had a sinful nature that they had children. Why is that important? Because they passed on that sinful, rebellious nature to their children and their children on down the line to you and me. And we all know that babies are angels, right? But they can be pretty selfish. 
It's all about them, right? The first word is mine. Mine. Even before mommy, daddy, just whoever you are, just, let's just establish the parameters. This is all mine now. I'm in charge. Okay, so we, we see that nature from the time that we're born. In fact, in Psalm 51, King David said, I was born in sin. I was born a sinner. Ezekiel tells us in chapter 18, the soul who sins shall die. Now, to die means to be separated from life, right? That makes sense. To die means to be separated from life. And what the Bible tells us is that because God is life, he is the source of life, the one from whom all life comes, physically, spiritually, and so on, that when we turn our back on God, we turn our back on the source of life. You see, the reality is God sends no one to hell. The Bible is clear that God made hell for Satan and the fallen angels. That was the intention for hell. You say, what do you mean God sends nobody to hell? No, I choose whether or not I will go to heaven or hell. Because God has done through Jesus Christ everything I need to be godly, to be like him, to be free, to have confidence in my heart that I'm his son and I will spend eternity with him just as I'm spending this present life with him. But you see, if I choose to say, I don't want you in my life, then not only does God honor my decision in this life, but when I step into eternity, draw my last breath, if I die in that condition, God has to honor my decision to not be in my life. So he doesn't send me to hell. He does everything to warn me that there is a hell and that right now I'm separated from him if I don't know him. He does everything to warn me. But if I continue to say, God, I don't want you, God says, it breaks my heart to let you go, but I have to honor your choice. But you need to know as long as you draw breath, I'm here. I'm here to save you. I'm here to bring you home. I'm here to set you free. But if I die in my lost condition, I have chosen to say, God, I don't want you in my life. And he says, then you won't have me in your life now or forever. And I pray that none of us make that decision this morning. So if that were the whole story of just us simply dying in our sin, then all God would have to do is just declare us guilty, send us to hell, and be done with it. But the Bible says not only is God just, just like you want any judge in the earth to be just, not only is God just, God is also a God of love. In other words, he loves us so much that he was determined to do whatever he had to do within that just system in order to save us from ourselves and declare us innocent instead of condemning us. But you might say, well, how can God do that? How can God possibly let us go without all of heaven demanding that he be replaced by a real judge? The Bible says in 1 John 1, if we confess our sins to God, we read this with me, if we confess our sins to God, he will keep his promise and do what is right or just. He will forgive us our sins and purify us from all our wrongdoing. Now that's a wonderful promise, but again, the question is legally, how can God do that? And the answer is, that is where the blood of Jesus comes in. You see, God does not and he cannot dismiss our sin. So he dealt with our sin head on by sending Jesus into this world to make an exchange. A legal exchange. You see, all that God did for you and me wasn't just based on emotion. It wasn't, oh, I love you, so let bygones be bygones. No, God loves us, but he's also just. And all the creatures in the spirit realm who've never fallen, never sinned, they know that he's just, and he must act justly and maintain his justice. 
So God came up with a way in order to satisfy both his love and his justice, and he made an exchange. The Bible explains it this way in 2 Corinthians 5. God took the sinless Christ Jesus and poured into him our sins. Then in exchange, he poured God's goodness into us. You see, what that means simply is this, that when you admit your need to be saved from the punishment that you deserve, and you receive what Jesus has done for you, that you no longer turn your back on him, but you turn to him and say, God, when I understand what you've done for me, I can't resist that kind of love. I open my heart to you, and I ask you to forgive me and exchange my sinfulness for your holiness and your beauty and your freedom and your purpose for my life. And the Bible says that when you do that, you become justified by God. What does it mean to be justified? It means to stand before God just as if you never sinned. And friends, that's exactly how God sees you when you receive him into your life. You see, it's important to understand that God does not overlook your sin. God has punished your sin, but he has punished it in the person of Jesus. If you receive that gift. Will you read with me what Peter says? Speaking of Jesus, he personally carried the load of our sins in his own body when he died on the cross so that we can be finished with sin and live a good life from now on. For his wounds have healed ours. That is what justification is. That a perfectly just and loving God could leave my sins unpunished, but only because he took the punishment upon himself that I deserve. You see, he didn't dismiss my sin, but he dealt with it in a way that he could justly say, I forgive you. Go and be free. Go and sin no more. The Apostle Paul asked this question in Romans 3.26. Isn't this unfair for God to let criminals go free and to say that they are innocent? But he adds, no, for he does it. How? Based on their trust in Jesus who took away their sins. You see, if Jesus had not died for us in exchange for our sin, then yes, you could say it's unfair for God to let us go free and to say that we're innocent. But because you have done something to deal with our predicament, now we can say it's not unfair. It is just for you to forgive us and to let us go because we have trusted in what Jesus has done for us. And he's applied that gift to our life. You see, that's the reason why the blood of Jesus is so precious to those of us who know the Lord. Why it's so valuable. Why it's such a gift. Because we know that we cannot at one at the same time pay for our sin and walk away free. If left to ourselves, it's one or the other. You see, I can live without God all I want. And when I stand before God, what's God going to say? Who has paid for your sin? If I can't say I received Jesus' gift of payment before I died, then the Father in love but with a broken heart says, I have no choice. You must pay for your own sin. And that means eternal separation from me. But he says, I don't want anyone to perish. So as long as you're alive, as long as you hear this good news, that's why it's called good news. 
The reason as long as you hear this good message, you can know you don't have to listen to the devil anymore. He's a liar. Jesus has come to set you free. He's come to set you free. He loves you. He's done everything he needs to do to break the power of sin over your life. And not only to free you from eternity without him, but to free you in this life from still living with guilt and shame and condemnation and fear that you're on God's wrong side. He says, all of that's a lie from the enemy. I've done all that needs to be done, that you can be free, you can know my love, and you can live without regret, without guilt, and without shame. Well, that leads to the next word, and I promise these next two are quick. Redemption. Redemption, Paul said, justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption is a financial term that means payment. Jesus said of himself in Mark chapter 10, he said, I've come to give, he came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to pay for those imprisoned for not being able to pay what they owe. And the Bible says of Jesus in Revelation 5, you were slain and your blood has bought or redeemed people from every nation. Every nation. You see, the Bible says in Leviticus that life is in the blood. We understand that, right? If you bleed out, you will die. Your blood carries oxygen. It carries a lot of stuff we probably haven't discovered yet. And so what Jesus did is that when his blood was poured out, what that was symbolic of was that he was literally dying for us. So he gave us his blood, you might say. He gave us his life that we can be free. And in shedding his blood, that blood was precious, was sinless, was actually the payment that God the Father recognized to cancel your debt and mine. The Bible says in Hebrews that actually after Jesus died on the cross, that when he ascended into heaven, he went into the holy place, the tabernacle in heaven, and he offered his blood on the mercy seat. And what was he saying to the Father and to all of heaven? The price is paid now. It's paid. Every human being to ever live now can go free who puts their trust in Jesus Christ. So the point very simply with redemption is that you can pay for your sin yourself. But with the blood of Jesus, you don't have to. You just don't have to. But it's your choice. You see, one of the biggest lies that that we tend to believe sometimes because the devil will whisper this lie in our ear, just like he did with Adam and Eve in the garden. God said, when you eat of this, you will die. You'll be separated from me because your action will display a heart that's in rebellion. So don't eat of this. Satan comes along and says, did God really mean that? God knows that you're not going to die. Go ahead and do it. And you see, he does the same thing with us. The Lord shows us how to live life to the full. The enemy comes along and says, no, God doesn't really mean that. No, no God's a, a party pooper. He just wants to keep you down. But you see, the reality is, friend, let this truth, simple truth sink in. If God loves you enough to pursue you, to come after you, to seek you out and find you, and to reveal his love to you. Do you think for a moment he does that because he wants to rob your life of fun or of joy? No. He seeks you out because he knows where you're headed. He seeks it out because he knows the incredibly glorious purpose for which he has made you. Jesus said, Satan comes to rob from you, to steal, to beat you up, to destroy you. I've come for one reason, to give you life and to give you a life that is full. 
Life that is full. And so we've got to stop believing the lies of the enemy and understand it's not the one who imprisons me that cares about me. It's the one who sought me out and paid the price for me that I could walk out of the prison. That's the one who loves me. That's the one who's worthy to give my life to. You see, I don't, I don't respond to God's love because it's a power that I can't resist. I respond to it because it's a love that will never let me go. There's a big difference. He doesn't force his love on anyone. He doesn't force his love on anyone. But he makes it available to all of us who recognize our need for a Savior. And our final word here is propitiation. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation simply means to appease anger and to restore to favor. We don't like the thought of God being angry. We don't like the thought of anybody being angry, right? I mean, we kind of excuse ourselves when we're angry, but we don't like anybody else to be angry, right? But the reality is, if God is just and loving, he must know anger. Because you and me, we are unjust, and yet we still get upset at injustice, don't we? So how much more will a perfect God be upset, be angry? The difference is, is that his anger is not like our anger. Hear me, friends. God never loses his temper. He's not whimsical and vindictive like we can be. He is perfect in his anger. It doesn't be, it's not expressed until the fullness comes of injustice, and God says, I have no choice now. I must act just like we would ask of any just judge in our own culture. So God doesn't get anger. His anger is not a character flaw. His anger is part of his perfection. But the question is, how do we escape God's anger? The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9, sins are forgiven only if blood is poured out. And the only time in human history that God allowed for human sacrifice was when he sent his own son to become a man and to live and die on the cross for you and me. Jesus was God's perfect sacrifice. He was a life given for a life to appease the anger of God against those who have violated his laws and to appease him once and for all. You see, when you understand how severe God's anger is against sin, you'll appreciate how amazing his love is for you to absorb that anger into himself so that you can go free. Let me give you an idea how the anger of God works. This may not be a perfect illustration. Many years ago when we lived in St. John, our kids were only small. They were playing in the backyard. I'm on the deck watching the kids play. There's this dog in the bush that begins to make its way toward the kids. They don't see him. They're still playing. What do I do as a father? I'm jumping off that deck, and I'm running in that backyard like a madman screaming. Now, my boys initially, dad's lost it. What have we done? They don't see what's behind them. That's what I'm going for, to get rid of that threat to my boys. That's the anger of God toward mankind. He doesn't want you to be the object of his anger, to understand the enemy whom you serve when you turn your back on him. That's who he hates. That's who he's going after to save you. And he asks you to open your heart to that free gift of salvation. The Bible says this. This is what real love is. It's not our love for God. It's God's love for us. That's real love in sending his son to be the way to take away our sins. I want to close with a story. A number of years ago, back 1980, 81, when I was in college, 
Yes, we had college back in those days. Some of the kids are wondering. We lived in Oregon, and uh, I remember being home one summer, there was actually an article in the LA Times. as a true story of a young lady who had been driving on the highway just north of Los Angeles. And she was passing through a small town. She was on her way home. And this small town had the highway going through. And they had instituted a bylaw in their town because what they had found over the years is that when people violated the traffic laws, they would get a ticket, but they would never show up in court and, and very seldom would actually send payment for the ticket. So they created this bylaw whereby when a police officer stopped someone, gave him a ticket, gave him a citation, they immediately were taken to court in that small town where they were to stand before a judge. And, and the, the court was open 24-7. Some may remember the sitcom from years ago, uh, Night Court. It was that kind of thing. It was court all night long, all day long. And so anyways, this girl, she's 18 years old, just going home, not paying attention, beautiful day, zipping down the highway, sees the lights behind her, pulls over, and she knows she's in trouble. Police officer comes, writes up the citation, says, young lady, can you please get in the back of my car? Locks up her car, takes her to court. When her turn comes, she's sitting there at the desk, the defendant's desk. And when her name is called, she stands up. And the judge takes out the citation and reads through it. And he says, young lady, how do you plead? And she said, guilty. He said, young lady, for your violation, the ticket is either $300 or you spend tonight in jail. That's back before the days of cell phones, uh, credit cards, debit cards. Uh, she just didn't have the money on her. She said, your honor, I don't have the money. He said, young lady, you've broken the law. You are guilty. And he hit the gavel and he said, you either pay $300 or you spend tonight in jail. And she began to tear up and say, Your Honor, I don't have the money. I can't pay it. And the judge did something unique. He pushed himself away from his bench. He stood up. He took his robe off and he laid it on a chair. He walked down the steps, went beside this young lady, stood with her at the defendant's desk, took out his wallet, counted out $300, put it in front of her, put the wallet back in his coat, went back up to his bench, put the robe on, sat back down, pulled himself in. Young lady, you've been charged with a traffic violation. The fine is $300 or a night in jail. What will you do? She says, Your Honor, I have $300. And the judge said, You can go free. Now, everybody in the court was amazed. They knew he was an, a just judge. He knew he was a kind judge. But they didn't discover till later that an 18-year-old girl was his daughter. You see, he was her father, but he was also a just judge. And he couldn't say, honey, I love you. I don't want anything bad to happen to you. So listen, I, I know you didn't mean to. It's okay. Because the courtroom would have said, your honor, you can't do that. That's unjust. We need a real judge. You see, 2,000 years ago, when Jesus hung on the cross, there was a literal transaction taking place between God and the human race. And what God was doing in the cross was saying this, I love you. You are my children. You've rebelled against me. You've walked away from me. But I love you. But I can't fail being the judge. And so I don't want you one day 
to stand before me and to, and to, to stand before me as a judge. I want you to be able to stand before me as your Savior. And so in the cross, he came down alongside of us and he stood beside us. Why? So that we say, I cannot possibly pay for my sin and still go free. He says, something's been done for you. Will you receive the gift? And if you do, when you stand before God, you can say, I'm lost in my sin, but I have Jesus. My sin has been paid for. You know what that means? Is that not only is he judge of all the earth, but now he is my father again. And he's brought me back to himself. That's what Jesus has done through the cross. That's justification. Your guilt is gone. That's redemption. Your debt has been paid in full. And that's propitiation. The anger of God has been appeased. And now you can relate to him as your heavenly father who loves you. Will you bow your head with me? We're going to participate in the Lord's table. Receive communion together. And communion is for everyone here this morning. The Lord did not institute communion to keep us away. It's a table of invitation. He says, I want you to come, and you can come and share in this table because of the blood of Jesus that washes away your sin. But you must receive him. As our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I just want to ask you very quickly this morning, if you are here and you're honest and you say, Pastor, I have to admit, I know I deserve punishment for my sin, but I want to receive God's free gift of forgiveness. I've never done that before. I want to be cleansed of my sin, and I want to know what it is to be a daughter of God, a son of God. If that's your heart's desire this morning, would you just raise your hand? I'm not asking you to join the church. Bless you. Is there anyone else? Bless you this morning in the balcony. I'm not asking you to join a church. I'm just inviting you to join the family of God. People who name the name of Jesus as their Lord and Savior. He's not a crutch. He's our Savior. Because that's what we need is a Savior to bring us back to God. I want to speak to you just for a moment if you're a Christian this morning here, if you're listening online. You may know that you've been forgiven. But if you're really honest, you'd say, Pastor, sometimes I still wonder if I'm going to heaven. I really wonder if God's not still angry at me for something I've done. Or I know that I'm a Christian, but I just have regret in my life. I have shame and guilt in my life. You know what that does? Not only does it call God a liar, because we're not believing what he says he's done for us and how we can be free, but it shuts us down and robs us of confidence so that we don't minister freedom to those around us. Because there's always that check in our heart where the devil says, oh, who do you think you are talking like that? Remember when you did this? Remember when you did that? What do you mean you want God to use you? He can't use you. Remember this? The Lord says that's a lie from the pit of hell. He whom the Son has set free is free, completely free. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ who now walk in the freedom of the Spirit. Stop walking in the flesh. But if you sin, confess your sin. And God is faithful and just. He's able to forgive you of all your sin and continue to walk in the light and have fellowship with Him. I could go on and on, but that's how amazing the 
transaction God has made for you and me. So as we come to the Lord's table this morning, I want to ask you just to take a moment as Joanna sings this song. If you don't know Jesus, before you participate, would you just open your heart and say, Jesus, I may not understand everything, but I know that I'm distant from you and I want to close that gap and I just surrender my life to your love. Come and forgive me, cleanse me. I receive you as my Savior and as the Lord of my life. And if you're a Christian, just deal with what the Holy Spirit speaking to you about. He wants you to leave here free. No condemnation, guilt, or shame. He wants you to minister and live in the confidence of a soul that's been set free, that knows God. So allow the Holy Spirit just to deal with you, wherever you may be, before we share. Thanks for listening to the GT Moncton podcast. For full services, head over to our YouTube channel. If you have any questions or want to get connected, go to gtmoncton.com and follow us on social media at GT Moncton to stay up to date on what's happening here at GT. God bless.